0: Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to this new episode of Lung Cancer Voices, and I'm sitting down with Dr. Gwynne Bebb who is a friend of mine and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Um, And the topic of the the pod this week is the role of of research, different types of research in lung cancer, uh, how patients can can get involved. And uh, Dr. Beb's credentials are really second to none. Uh, He's a medical doctor, he also has a PhD, Uh, he runs a a big um, research program at the University of Calgary, clinical trials, preclinical research, uh, and then uh, a big database called the GLANS-LOOK database. And so we're gonna touch on on all of these kind of different elements of uh, research which drives how uh, treatments and outcomes uh, and lives are improved uh, for people with lung cancer. So with that preamble, uh, Gwyn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Paul. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, especially at this location.
0: Yes, I should say we are recording this in Barcelona at the World Conference on Lung Cancer, which is which is the place where much of the biggest and newest lung cancer research is, is presented. So it's always an exciting meeting to come to. Gwyn, maybe just to start off with, could you just kind of briefly outline the range of research types that there are, because uh, sometimes when we think of research, we think of, of a clinical trial where you get an experimental drug, but there's a lot more to it than that.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. Um, and as you alluded to, the, the whole conference here is full of uh, presentations based on a wide range of uh, research endeavors, and these represent the various uh, research facets that you were talking about. I think uh, it 's probably worth trying to break it down into a variety of uh, small uh, bite sized chunks in many ways. Um, uh, I think we all know that lung cancer outcomes are not good, and we 're all striving to improve them but it 's actually very difficult to actually change um, anything without really understanding it, and so that 's what research is all about is trying to get a better understanding of exactly the, the foe that we're dealing with. And uh, that entails a lot of different kinds of uh, uh, approaches. So a very easy one to, to think about is we need to understand what a patient's journey when they're diagnosed with this disease actually involves. So that kind of research can be very basic questionnaires. Um, it could be questionnaires about your quality of life, how your disease is affecting your day-to-day existence, how it affects your family, your uh, income, those kind of things. That doesn't involve a great deal of technology, but it's very, very important in understanding how people are affected by a very uh, a threatening diagnosis. On that kind of note, it's worth looking at uh, um, what you alluded to in your introduction, the GLANS Look database. This is a little bit of a step up from that in trying to Um, collect what we call outcome data. So trying to change the course of lung cancer, we know depends, uh, the challenges depend on the stage that people are diagnosed at. If somebody were to ask me, how do your patients do when they're uh, facing a diagnosis of stage two lung cancer, when uh, they're confronted with certain other health challenges? And the truth is, I'd be able to maybe delve through my limited memory and come up with an approximation, but it wouldn't be a very detailed and accurate answer. So trying to really um, derive good quality um, granular um, outcome data takes a lot more effort than you would think. And so entities like the GLANSLOOK database are designed to try to do that. It's funded by patient donors actually. And uh, we have compiled data on all our patients in Calgary going back 15 years. And so we're able to answer very specific questions about how people with small cell and cancer do uh, versus people with non-small cell, how people with a non-small cell that has a particular marker do compared to people who don't have those markers. And this is becoming very important for healthcare providers, such as in our case, Alberta Health Services. It's also becoming uh, very important for um, uh, pharmaceutical companies who are trying to develop new drugs to understand the... Niches that they are directing these drugs at.
0: C- can I yes. d- interrupt you, Gwen, Then, so, so for the the Look database, and there are other databases like that ac- ac- across the country. Uh, although maybe yours is one of the leading ones. Wh- what would a patient would you would just approach a patient and say, would you would you consent for me to collect information about, you know, when you were diagnosed and the stage and what type of treatment you've had and and. and how you've done? Is, is, it, is it that simple? And if I was a patient and you asked me to give consent, I might want to know, is my name going to end up on Facebook or on the, on the internet and with all of my medical information for anyone to see?
1: That's a fantastic question. For this particular um, exercise with uh, a data set such as the glands look, we do not actually approach patients to ask for the consent what we actually do is use all the data that uh, has been collected as part of our um Uh, clinical experience. We look at uh, data on treatments. We look at data on blood counts. We look at data on responses that we see on CT scans. We look at some of the molecular data that is part of uh, routine clinical makeup. But But no patient names involved then, it's all uh,
0: anonymized.
1: It is. uh, So this is very important, right? So all patient information to some extent is identifiable. We work very strictly with anonymized data derived from Alberta Health Services uh, records. Most of these records are actually stored electronically. And I think over the duration of this database, we've seen a bit of a change in uh, how uh, some of the challenges involved in storing data. I remember when I first started, there was issues of, of, of privacy that we had to uh, you know, uh, address. And that was usually addressed by making sure that all our records were kept in a locked metal cabinet in a locked room. Now. Uh, clearly, things are, are different. Things are stored electronically, and healthcare providers such as Alberta Health Services, and the same is true with uh, every province across Canada. They go to great lengths to secure these silos. But as we know, there are more incidents uh, being reported, probably many more unreported, of uh, such uh, barriers being breached. And so um, now, when we when we do these things, we, we have to discuss in some detail with health services with the university who are the custodians of this data, what measures we need to go to to keep protecting uh, patients' privacy. But importantly, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we deal with anonymized data uh, looking at uh, outcomes according to different uh, uh, scenarios.
0: Right. And I should say that, uh, so you and and I and others are involved with an effort to try and uh, develop some kind of national database of this kind of information that you've been so successful with, with glands Look, and if we can do that nationally, uh, you know, the power uh, uh, that we can achieve should be really enhanced, yeah.
1: Well, I think uh, that's a very important point. Um, some of the presentations today, uh, we're looking at uh, trying to address questions that pertain to very small subgroups of lung cancer patients that are particular biomarkers who are treated with, for example, immunotherapy. And we have a number of those patients in our database, but the numbers that we have in our database is too small for us to draw any conclusions. By sharing that data across the country, uh, as is being encouraged by uh, Lung Cancer Canada, I think we have a, a really meaningful chance of contributing to our understanding of these various scenarios, and there's nothing to stop us uh, sharing more broadly than that with European sources, uh, other sources in the United States, for example, as well as in other parts of the world.
0: So uh, I'm going to move on. We've, we've talked a little bit about, about questionnaires, uh, that kind of research. We've now talked at uh, you know, some length about, about databases. What about clinical trials? And, and you know, when patients, uh, when we're trying to develop new treatments, we, we do that by testing them in new trials and there are phase one trials, phase two trials, phase three trials. Could you just explain a little bit about what those are and how people can get involved?
1: That's an excellent question. As you know, we've made a lot of progress in treating lung cancer over the last 15 to 20 years, but uh, every step forward really is made possible by um, a clinical trial that has demonstrated that a new, novel, exciting intervention is actually better than what we've previously had available to treat uh, our patients with. Uh, Some of these trials with immunotherapy, for example, have really revolutionized uh, our current experience. Uh, Our Clinics have been totally changed over the last two years because of this. Although the the, the steps forward usually come from a phase three trial, that phase three trial in itself is built on several other uh, tiers of, uh, of research. And uh, we can go back to, for example, the pre-human testing, if you like, when somebody has uh, um, some evidence that a a new molecule might be useful in a particular kind of uh, cell. Some of these experiments will initially be done in petri dishes, uh, possibly then in animals. And when there's enough clinical data to justify a clinical trial, then once uh, there's agreement that this is an ethical endeavor, that phase one clinical trial will, uh, will start. And those phase one clinical trials are really designed to test the, um, the toxicity, um, to measure the kind of side effects that we can expect to see as we increase the dose uh, until we get to some kind of efficacy. So that phase one uh, level of trials, those are the earliest trials. They, uh, they are run in some centers across the country, but not in all centers across the country because they are a little bit more specialized than our other kinds of trials.
0: Right, so that, so phase one trials are really not easily available necessarily for everyone. You've, you, you're going to be going to some of the bigger academic centers for those. That's and right. just to reiterate, yeah. those trials, the first time the drug, Rabia, is being used, really just to find out is it safe and, and what's the right dose, that right. kind of thing.
1: So some of those trials will actually be a very first in human trial. So clearly, you know, th- th- this, is, this is a big deal we're actually asking volunteers to help us understand what these uh, molecules and chemicals can do to, uh, to our bodies. So, as I said, these are experiments that are being performed in humans, and uh, we have to be ethically and morally extremely on sound, very much on sound ground when we're doing these.
0: So some patients will say to me, look, if I talk to them about a clinical trial, I say, am I going to be a guinea pig? But it sounds to me from these phase one trials where you're just trying to figure out the dose and side effects, is, is there a bit of truth to that?
1: Well, I think it depends what we mean by being a guinea pig. and I think This is an important discussion that we should have with all our patients who are contemplating participating in a clinical trial. Clearly, every clinical trial is an experiment. We wouldn't be Looking at it, uh, if it wasn't for the fact we didn't know a lot about this, uh, this new agent, uh, the big question at hand is, is this, is this you know, any good? Is it better than what we have? So clearly it is an experiment. There's a lot of unknowns. We know far less about these drugs than we do about drugs that we've been using for 20, 30 years, all right? So I think we, we do have to bear in that mind it is an experiment, but are we a guinea pig. I think the big difference uh, between a guinea pig in, in a science experiment in the lab and uh, clinical trial participants is the choice and people will only participate in a clinical trial when they have given informed consent. And that implies that you say yes, having uh, read the consent form, understanding all the potential implications and risks involved with the proviso that you can pull out of that clinical trial at any one time with no consequences uh, at all. So yes, we are taking part in experiments, but it is voluntary, and I think there's a subtle difference uh, that makes us not true guinea pigs. Yeah
0: actually there's two points that, that you you mentioned that I might just pick up on one is when you approach someone about one of these early phase clinical trials normally we're doing that you know with all of the information that you've you've explained that people would receive but also with some optimism to say that there's a body of research that's gone on to get to this point which makes this potential uh, drug, or that's being tested, really quite exciting and quite hopeful. And then um, the second point was uh, about informed consent and that people can drop out within whenever they want. And you know, we should point out that 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 concept is enshrined in in Canadian law and in international law that the the right of the patient uh, um, trumps the right of the researcher or the or the the outcome of the, the science
1: absolutely and it, it, it is a key element i mean research on on fellow humans has a long evil history actually so uh, when we're performing clinical trials as i said we have to be um... we as investigators in our heart have to have what we call equipoise when there is a uh, randomization within this trial uh, and that refers to a uncertainty or a lack of um, uh, knowledge that one arm is truly better than the other. And that that in itself, I think, is a very important uh, part of uh, uh, moving forward with clinical trial types of research.
0: Now, so now you're talking now about randomization. So those phase one trials, typically not randomized, that's when you, you know, if someone enrolls, they would get the drug in question. And then when that trial is completed and the researchers have established what the right dose is and that it's safe and and what the side effects that might be anticipated. Then it moves on to phase two or phase three where what are the questions there than the randomization process? You've yeah,
1: so um, we like to be categorical about uh, how we define phase 1, phase 2s, and phase 3s. Uh, I think what we're learning now is that there's a kind of gray zones in between each one. But basically, once, as you say, the dose has been defined, the toxicity well understood, we can move forward to phase 2 trials that generally tend to focus on a couple of specific uh, areas within cancer, maybe a specific tumor type. Um, to look for efficacy. Usually there's some signal in the phase one that kind of leads us to that.
0: And just what is efficacy?
1: Efficacy, very good. Effectiveness. Does this drug actually do anything to tumors? does it make people live a bit longer? Does it, does it change perceptibly the clinical course that we would expect if patients were not taking this drug? That, these are kind of general metrics or measures of efficacy. Phase twos, they generate a lot of excitement when there's a, a hint of, of uh, some important effect and uh, based on that we try then to formulate the framework for our definitive phase three.
0: And that's where you've established then the dose, you've established the side effects in the phase one, you've established that it can work in phase two, and in phase three you then want to know is it better than what you've already got?
1: Absolutely, so the phase three part is this is the real kind of nitty-gritty of determining whether this new treatment actually is better than what we have. And this, of course, will involve a randomization. And so patients who are enrolled into these kind of trials, having signed the informed consent form on on the basis of a very detailed understanding of what's going on, they will be randomized, which is essentially a computer-based flip of a coin to receive what we call standard of care, which is the best that we currently have, or be randomized to the investigational arm, where the new drug or the new combination is being used. And the ultimate uh, goal of the clinical trial is to compare the outcomes of the interventional arm with a new drug versus the standard of care. You know, th- uh, what is often disappointing is that despite excellent signals in a phase one trial and very, very promising signals in a phase two trial, when we actually do the comparison in the randomized phase three, we can often be unexpectedly profoundly disappointed. On the other hand, occasionally, we get a fantastic demonstration of, of, of a great effect from the new drug. And I think as, as we you know, uh, reflect on the advances that have been made in lung cancer recently, we have to also be aware of how much patient time and energy endeavor each of these step forwards represents because each step forward is built on not just a phase three but the phase twos and phase ones that preceded it, each of them involving many dozens, hundreds, in a case, occasionally a couple of thousand patients before we get to the uh, desired answer.
0: And we've had some fantastic. Answers in the last few years yes. with immunotherapy and some of the targeted therapies, so Dr. Beb, I think you've walked us through preclinical research, phase one, phase two, phase three, uh, the importance of getting uh, information from databases, uh, some of the questionnaire type research which looks at quality of life issues. If I was wanting to you know give a message out through this podcast to people who are listening about you know how could they get involved, uh, how can patients uh, get involved in research. What would you say? How would they set about doing that?
1: Well, that's a that's a fantastic uh, question. All this research is trying to better understand the disease in a way that we can then ultimately improve patients' uh, lives. So I think there's there's a lot at stake for the researchers, yes, but for all patients. And I think it is going to be very difficult to make progress without patient involvement. That patient involvement uh, can take the form of uh, a variety of things. I think promotion, advocacy, these are key things. Fundraising, none of uh, none of this uh, kind of research happens without, without money. Clinical trials are usually paid for by the sponsor, very often uh, a pharmaceutical company, but sometimes clinical trials actually um, orig- originate within the university or within the cancer center, in which case contributions from uh, grant giving bodies, but even patient donations can make a big difference to the the feasibility of those kind of studies. Donating your samples for more detailed research is also a particularly worthy and valuable thing. At the Tom Baker at the moment, we are trying to instill or install a concept of what we call universal consent, where uh, patients will be able to sign a form that allows us to do all kinds of research on the samples that uh, are derived from their patient journey. Whether that's a sample taken out of surgery, or whether it's a biopsy or, uh, or a, a blood sample. In some cases, we're asking for stool and urine samples in addition to do some some research. These are donations. They're incredibly valuable donations. So these are these are these are these are very important ways that patients can contribute to the body of uh, knowledge and the body of research.
0: I think we sometimes overlook that, don't we? Because we often we think about patients involved in research. It's because they've signed up to take part in a clinical trial, uh, rather than the very altruistic contribution by just allowing their data and their samples to be to be used for the greater good. Back to the clinical trial bit though, if, if somebody who's listening to this has got lung cancer and is going through treatment, and they're interested in particularly looking to see if there's a clinical trial available for them, how would they set about doing that, assuming, let's say, their physician looking after them hasn't mentioned it to them?
1: Very, very important question. Um, clearly, the, the first line of attack there is to let your uh, oncologist know that uh, you are interested in clinical trial opportunities and would like to participate in one if there's one available. There clearly are not clinical trials for every situation in every centre across Canada. As a, a physician in in Calgary, I often. Speak to my colleagues in Edmonton to see if there are clinical trials available there. That's a fairly straightforward transition of care between two two centres uh, uh, within the same province. It becomes a little bit more difficult if we're moving from one province to another. But these are these are things that are feasible. There are some excellent resources on the internet. Um, clinicaltrials.gov dot, dot gov is uh, is an important uh, website that lists all the clinical trials registered with the Cancer Institute in the United States and. Uh, I think is probably a more up-to-date resource than most uh, most of us uh, clinicians. So, yes, there are, there are lots of ways of trying to try find out about clinical trials, but I would say that just because a clinical trial is registered somewhere doesn't mean that you will necessarily have re- straightforward access to it.
0: Right, so most trials have eligibility criteria, to so the question that's going to be we're trying to answer has got the appropriate people to be able to answer the question. Yeah. I don't think I've got any more questions. We've gone through a whole range of different research opportunities and how people can get involved. Is there anything that you would you would say as sort of in closing to um really stress how important this all is?
1: Well, I think uh, as I mentioned before, we only have to look at the progress we've made in the last 15-20 years and realize that none of that would have been possible Without the willingness of patients to participate in research, possibly for their own benefit, but most likely for the benefit of those who are coming after them. So, research is an excellent endeavor, but importantly, the participation of the patients in that endeavor is a fantastic unifying way of moving the lung cancer agenda forward. So, yes. Go out of your way to see how you can support research at your institution, uh, nationally, and even globally.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Beb, for for giving up your time at the conference to to talk about this. And if you're listening to this and you are interested in learning more, um, please look at the the website lungcancercanada.ca. If you're interested in research opportunities, um, you speak to your uh, physician. Uh, to see what may be available uh, where you are. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.